Hey everyone, Jason here. Before we get going, I just wanted to take a moment to give a quick shout out to the new paid membership option that we recently rolled out. This option is meant for people that have been getting value from the podcast and want to enable us to keep producing it in a more sustained way. It's also for people that want extra stuff, such as bonus content, a Slack room that's vibrant and filled with people tackling climate change from a wide range of backgrounds and perspectives, as well as a host of programming and events that get organized in the Slack room. We also have a virtual town hall once a month where you can get a preview of what's to come and provide feedback and input on our direction. We'll be adding more membership benefits over time. If you want to learn more, just go to the website, myclimatejourney.co. And if you're already a member... Thank you so much for your support. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Dr. Matanya Horwitz, the founder and CEO of Amp Robotics, an industrial artificial intelligence and robotics company that's fundamentally changing the economics of recycling by lowering processing costs and extracting maximum value from waste streams. The company is backed by Sequoia Capital, BV, Closed Loop Partners, Congruent Ventures, and Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners, which is a spin out from Alphabet. This is a Climate Tech Startup Series episode, and it's actually the first one that we're experimenting with releasing as a podcast as well. Matanya walks through a company overview of Amp Robotics, and we have a great discussion about the waste industry, the recycling industry, how Amp Robotics came about, why it came about, what problems they're solving, their progress to date, their long vision, and what's coming next. Matanya. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Really uh, a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, uh, thanks for the, the spotlight here. I'm excited. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Josh and Abe at, at Congruent have been singing your praises. And I sat next to you at, uh, at a Sequoia dinner back when we were allowed to do those kinds of things. But I've never yes. actually really heard the, the Amp Robotics story. Yeah, well, no, happy to share it. And I think, um, you know, Recycling as an industry is a really interesting one. I think a lot of people have, you know, kind of conceptions about it, but the more you dive in, the more you see that there's a lot of potential in the industry, um, but there's also a lot of layers to it, a lot of history that's absolutely fascinating. So, um, so I love talking about it and uh, yeah, just glad to, to have a chance to talk through it with you today. And one thing I've noticed is that when people get into their deck, I always want to hear about the origin story of the company and how you came mm -hmm. to be working on this problem. So if you're not, if you don't cover, if you do cover that in the deck, let's just jump into the deck. If you don't cover that in the deck, maybe we can start there before we jump into the slides. Yeah, ab absolutely. So uh, yeah, I don't have too much uh, about me in the deck. So, um, but a, a quick overview would be, um, I'm someone who's always loved robotics and artificial intelligence. I love sci-fi and, uh, you know, ever since watching Transformers when I was like, you know, seven or eight years old, I thought, you know, robots is what I wanted to work on. Um, this led me to go to Caltech for my PhD. Uh, I would study uh, something called control theory, but more or less robotic path planning uh, and robotic grasping. Um, I was a small part on a couple of DARPA projects while I was there. And um, although I was doing all this kind of robots, robot stuff, um, I got exposed to some of the early results in uh, deep learning. Um, and this was around 2012, 2013. And 
And I thought, you know, this is kind of what I've been looking for. Uh, I thought this is going to be absolutely transformational technology. You really have for the first time the ability to make computers and robotic systems see the world. Um, and, uh, and that just got me uh, really, uh, really excited. So finished up my PhD as fast as I could and started to focus on deep learning. Um, and after learning the tools, I began to look for places where I thought it could be useful. So looked at different things in drones, different things in warehouse robotics, uh, some things in agriculture, and really started to get more interested in recycling. Uh, so recycling, um, I, I probably knew less about the industry than, than a lot of your listeners, but um, started visiting these recycling facilities, talking to the owners and the operators. And um, if you ever go to one of these facilities, what you'll see is a, a lot of people standing around conveyor belts, sorting stuff by hand. Uh, it's really nasty. Uh, there's a lot of gross stuff in there. There's a lot of hazards. So hypodermic needles, almost every recycling facility has a story about like a grenade being in the recycling stream. So very high rates of turnover, very unpleasant task. And uh, what I saw was that um, these owners and operators, they, they were very eager for robotics and automation. And they would ask me, uh, why can't we get robots in this industry? Um, it sure looks like a manufacturing operation. You have a conveyor belt. Um, people are sorting stuff off of it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't kind of see the mismatch. This looks a lot like what I've seen in manufacturing. And what I, what I saw was they were right. Um, the robots to solve this problem already existed. What was missing was a vision system that could teach uh, these systems how to uh, identify and pick material, even though it's smashed, folded, dirty, torn up, all piled together. And this was a capability that deep learning had enabled. And so you had this great fit of kind of commercial need and a technical obstacle that had kept it from being automated already. So I got really excited and kind of dove into the industry and um, started learning about the unit economics and everything like that. But that's kind of what brought me to uh, recycling was this um, this sort of clear commercial need that was being uh, dead, that was now solvable with, with technology. This is a good counterexample to me because one of the things I've learned about myself is that I can't have a solution in search of problems. I need to land on a problem first and then look at different ways I might address that problem. But you actually came out the other way and have been quite successful so far. So, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, I, and that, that's not to say that there's a, a right way or a wrong way. I think this is just illustrative that there's not a right way or a wrong way. It just comes mm -hmm. down to kind of knowing, knowing oneself, uh, I, yeah. I think. No, it was, I was definitely a guy with the, the hammer looking for a nail. Um, so, and you know, my understanding is actually, it's much more common to sort of have a, you know, kind of what, what you're saying where you have the problem and you're kind of then looking for the solution. I think, I think the reason we've been successful and the reason I, um, you know, was, was uh, able to get started here was um, it was this really tight fit between like sort of the capabilities I, I had or kind of knew were available with uh, deep learning, but also, you know, personal passion for, um, you know, the, the effect that we might be able to have with this technology. So as soon as it, there was kind of a fit for recycling, I mean, it was kind of like there was a couple fits here, right? There's obviously people doing wonderful things with manufacturing or with manufacturing, but also warehouse robotics and, and all sorts of other things, different things with autonomous cars. But like, I, I kind of wanted to work in recycling. And I, when I found something with this environmental connection, it's, it kind of led me to double down on it. And so I think, um, you know, you, you have to be personally passionate about it, right? Otherwise, um, you know, you won't be as successful as the guy who is passionate about solving the problem. Well, I have a thousand questions, but maybe we should jump into the slides because I'm sure you'll cover a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what I thought I'd do is kind of start with, I think most people's impression of what's going on in the recycling industry. So 
if you read anything in the newspaper about recycling right now, it's probably about how the industry is really hurting uh, because Southeast Asian markets uh, and especially the China market have stopped buying our recycled commodities. Um, so for the industry, what you have are these recycling facilities that are taking a whole mess of material um, and they're separating out individual commodities. So number one, plastics, number two, plastics, cardboard, paper, things like that. Um, back in the 2000s, the Chinese economy was growing rapidly and there was a, a massive demand for all, of the, all this material. And what happened was a lot of American and European companies uh, didn't produce very high quality material. There was actually a lot of garbage sort of still in this uh, and it was getting shipped to China and all of this garbage was creating environmental problems. Um, there's a lot more to the story, but this is a very high level overview. Um, the Chinese government stepped in and put very high quality standards on the material that would be imported into China. And, and since then other Southeast Asian countries have as well. What it's done is effectively created a glut of low quality material in the industry. And that's a real problem because for these recycling facilities, they, it's very difficult to produce high quality material. So the unit economics in the industry um, have changed. Uh, it's been harder to operate these places. Um, and it's only sort of gotten tougher uh, with COVID. Um, so these uh, manual sorting jobs uh, that are necessary to create high quality material um, have had uh, sort of even higher rates of turnover since COVID got started, even harder time. These facilities are having an even harder time keeping these people safe with the reason being that um, these facilities weren't designed with social distancing in mind. And so you have a lot of sorters who are working side by side, uh, taking stuff out of the material stream. Um, and a lot of sorters have also even been uh, afraid of putting their hands through material that, prob that probably came from an infected person's house. Um, and so, yeah, turnover issues and everything like that have only gotten more severe. And, so, and, and when, when, I see, when I see headlines that say things like recycling is a sham and, you know, all the recycling you thought you were doing by putting stuff in the green box over the years, you know, wasn't actually helping. Um, what do you, I mean, is that, is there any truth in that or, or uh, is that overblown or is it a misconception? Like, where does that come from? So, so here's sort of the good news and the bad news, which is that the recycling industry is driven by, it's, a, it's driven by commodities. Uh, so, you know, we are actually extracting true value out of these different plastics and paper and metals, and that's what drives the industry. So I think a lot of people have a perception that it's driven either by regulation or sort of consumer pressure and things like that. That can be true in certain cases, but especially here in the United States, there's actually very little kind of regulation around it, especially at the federal level. And so these recycling facilities are kind of going after the high value stuff, which ends up being number one plastics, number two plastics, aluminum cans, um, you know, ferrous metals, uh, cardboard. These are all high value materials and they definitely, definitely get recycled. What you then have is this whole set of other materials that may be recyclable, um, but it may not be profitable to separate them out. And this will change jurisdiction by jurisdiction, recycling facility by recycling facility. Um, and so in some cases, some materials may be recycled and in other cases, they may not. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not truly a sham. The vast majority of this material is, is getting recycled as you'd expect. But um, for some of these commodities, um, just because it has a recyclable symbol on it doesn't necessarily mean it will be recycled. Um, an example of this is um, uh, when this situation with China happened, uh, the value of what's called mixed plastics, so the plastics that aren't number ones, twos, and fives, uh, dropped a lot, and it became unprofitable for a lot of facilities to separate this stuff out. And so in some cases, those actually uh, were landfilled. Um, now, 
recycling facilities won't do this. Um, uh, it, it's very bad and it, it'll break their contracts if they don't recycle what they say they're going to recycle. And so in, in these cases, they will have to go back to their customers and say, we aren't recycling this and here is why. And so it's sort of like, if you, if you look into it, you'll know exactly what is and isn't being recycled in a different community. It's not sort of undercover, um, but, um, but sometimes people, you know, don't, you know, learn about it and then they're surprised by what isn't being processed. Um, and these can be everything from different types of paper to different specific types of plastic resin and things like that. So plastic bags often are not supposed to go to a recycling facility. The cost of extraction is too high. And so they end up going out uh, to the landfill. But if you bring them to your grocery store where they're, they're not sort of mixed in with other contaminants, they can actually be recycled and they are recycled effectively. Uh, so it, it starts to get a little complicated and, and it's very material dependent, but the majority of materials are definitely being processed because it's profitable to do so. Thanks. Yeah. That, that's helpful color. Yeah. But, but, you know, the situation with COVID and, and all of this, it's frustrating because for a number of reasons. So like, I, like we were just talking about, this material actually does have value. Uh, and if you total up the amount of value in papers, plastics, metals that, that currently go to the landfill, there's actually hundreds of billions of dollars of commodity value that's thrown away. Um, it's all the worse because when you throw this stuff away, it actually has, uh, you know, important environmental effects. Um, one of the ones I, I kind of focus on is um, basically the um, decomposition of material. So for food and paper, it decomposes and produces significant amounts of greenhouse gases. Uh, landfills end up being one of the, the biggest sources of methane uh, in, in the United States. And so um, not only are you losing value, you're literally kind of throwing money away, um, but, but there are consequences to it. And um, and so what we see ourselves as doing here at Amprobotics is reducing the cost of sorting, uh, increasing uh, the amount of value that you can extract and really aligning incentives behind uh, the recovery of this material from the landfill and hopefully capturing some fraction of this hundreds of billions of dollars that are, uh, that are lost to the landfills today. And actually just kind of getting one layer deeper, um, you know, I think, I think what's informative is understanding the unit economics for this industry. Um, the, the rough numbers here are that today, um, the commodity value of materials that are coming from people's houses is about $80 per ton. Um, that's real value. That's the actual value of these aluminum cans and everything else. Uh, the problem is, is that to run a recycling facility, it's actually something more like $90 per ton. Uh, so you actually have negative unit economics just based on the commodity value because of this processing cost. Um, this wasn't always true before 2018, uh, when the Chinese market hadn't really shut down, the commodity value was um, $110 per ton or even higher. And, um, and so you sort of have this roughly $20 per ton of margin over your $90 ton of processing cost. Um, what you actually saw in the industry back then is people were paying for recycling. Like the stuff was so value, recycling facilities would pay you to bring it to them. Um, and, uh, and so it's an example where, Hey, if commodity prices are high, this can be a fantastic business to be in. Almost everything's getting recovered today. Commodity prices are low and it's a much tougher business. What we see ourselves as doing with our robots is significantly reducing that cost of sorting and bringing that $90 per ton of processing costs down to something more like $65 a ton. Um, and it's, um, and we do this in a number of ways, but we make the rest of the recycling facility more efficient. We cut down on the need for this manual sorting. And so based purely on the commodity values, we can bring these recycling facilities back into the black um, and make it a great business to be in. And then if commodity prices rise, you start, you start to have this phenomenal business. And I think there's, 
A key figure here to contrast this with, which is for recycling facilities, they charge, or, or I'm sorry, for landfills, they charge what are called tip fees. Recycling facilities charge these too. But it's a it's a cost for you to actually drop off material at the landfill. You know, it comes from your like your garbage truck is literally tipping material into the landfill. The national average here in the US is $55 a ton. And if you look at sort of the processing cost for a landfill, it's it ends up being about $15 a ton. It's primarily the sort of amortized cost of building a huge hole in the ground. So landfills are making $40 a ton of margin. Recycling facility uh, on basically accepting uh, garbage. Recycling facilities are making kind of zero, maybe even negative amounts. Um, today, with our systems, we can help make that something maybe more like $20 a ton. But as the technology improves and you get better and better over time, you know, the real thing you want to do here is you want to drive the amount of margin you, you can extract from garbage towards what uh, you can get from a landfill and make recycling a better business to be in than a landfill. And that that's sort of the, you know, the dream that we're, we're going after. And, um, and in that case, recycling becomes this de facto way of dealing with waste. And that's kind of the big picture we all get excited about in the company. So if I'm hearing right, essentially, uh, there's stuff that goes straight to the landfill. There's stuff that tries to be recycled, but doesn't, doesn't fit the criteria or it's commingled the wrong way or things like that. And so then there's some meaningful percentage of what goes to be recycled that doesn't actually get recycled and ultimately ends up in the landfill. And the landfill has economics that, you know, you can just dump trash and make money. And recycling today, because of what's happened in China, it's pushed it into um, negative territory where recycling cannot operate in a sustainable way. But by introducing robotics, you can help recycling to lower their manual costs, increase their efficiency, um, mm -hmm. uh, make the math work, which then not only um, helps the recycling industry Get stronger, but keeps more waste ultimately out of the landfill. Exactly. Right? Yep. Yeah. There's only one other thing that I, I kind of glossed over, which is the recycling facilities, they, they get revenue from two sources. So the commodity value is sort of the biggest component here. And what we want to do is make it, hey, make it so that, hey, you can run a business purely on the commodity value because that aligns all the incentives. But recycling facilities also charge tip fees. So when you bring your material to that recycling facility, you might pay a tip fee of 30 or $40 a ton, but, but that'll make it so these recycling facilities are sustainable currently, um, yeah, even without our robots, but we can then make it so that that tip fee can be zero, which in turn incentivizes uh, the recycling of more material. But, um, but yeah, there's kind of a longer story too, where Recycling facilities are able to charge tip fees because what you're really doing when you drop material off at a landfill is you're able to save your transport costs to the landfill. Those landfills are placed on the edge of, of municipalities kind of far away and the cost of transport material there can be significant. So recycling facilities have one key advantage, which is you can put them inside cities where transport costs can be lower um, and which allows them to charge these tip fees as an additional source of revenue. And wh what are these recycling companies actually buying from you? What are you providing them? So um, great uh, question. So we, um, we develop a, a number of pieces of technology to help uh, lower the costs uh, for these recycling facilities and also allow them to extract more value. Um, so our primary product is what we call Amp Cortex, but it's a, a sorting robot um, that can um, pull out pretty much all the commodities that these facilities care about. So cartons, aluminum cans, cardboard, number one plastics, number two plastics. Um, we sold over a hundred of these robots now. Um, they're here in the United States. We have some in Europe, uh, Canada, and Japan. 
Um, and uh, yep, they're happily happily working away, um, uh, diverting material from the landfills. And that's like a one-time cost. And then is there some maintenance or um, kind of licensing yeah. associated with that directionally? That, that's exactly right. So we, we sell these robots. It's kind of a capital uh, purchase. What's key for these guys is that um, these robots can be installed with almost no retrofit into their existing operation. It more or less mm-hmm. just bolts onto the conveyor belts they have. And then um, there's a number of different subscription services that they get on top of that. So subscribing to software updates, hardware warranty. Um, we have different features that'll expand the throughput of the system or um, other capabilities that they care about. But yeah, kind of CapEx upfront and then subscription revenue over time is, is our model here. Mm-hmm. Cool. So that's one offering. And then you said you had others? Yeah. So we also deploy um, our vision systems without the robots. Um, and that's basically for business intelligence for these facilities. Um, so really, you know, there's kind of a couple components here I'll, I'll, I would break out. You have the robot and the robot's kind of the exciting thing. It moves, it looks cool. Um, but that's only a piece of the puzzle. Uh, and these, we're actually just buying off the shelf robots from companies like Omron or ABB. We then have a set of neural networks we've built uh, that provides on the edge inference. Uh, and those are just connected to a color camera that's ahead of the robot. Um, so we just use a very low cost industrial color camera um, with all of sort of the intelligence enabled by um, software and the advancements in deep learning over the last several years. So, you know, at its core, at what this company has is this vision system that's very good at identifying heterogeneous material. Um, you know, it's smashed, it's folded, it's dirty. You have, you know, thousands of different SKUs. We can identify this, uh, all this different stuff. And then you version that technology in different ways. A sorting robot is one of them. The vision system by itself is another. So we can tell them, hey, here's how pure your material streams are. So if you sell it to like a Southeast Asian or Chinese end market, you can be sure of the quality before it gets all the way there and then gets rejected, which is a huge issue for these guys. Um, we're also developing other sorting technologies um, that, uh, that, may, that use different robots, some of which are non-robotic, um, that are specialized for particular material streams. But everything we do is organized around a common sort of vision platform. They're all using the same neural nets. They're all using the same infrastructure. Um, and, uh, and we call that AMP Neuron, sort of this common platform that's inside all of our robots. You know, we have a little brain thing going on with, uh, with the naming of these, these things. Um, but really just the sort of growing product uh, lineup that uh, solves all of the central challenges of the recycling industry. Um, and what, what, what are you replacing? So for these, for these robots, um, so we're um, automating what's right now manual sorting stations. So what you'll see is in a typical facility, you have a number of different niches where uh, people are being used. Um, we can automate for a typical f- recycling facility, roughly 75% of those stations. This is a big deal for these recycling facilities because um, it ends up because the job's so unpleasant, the turnover is very high. Um, people don't want to be doing this stuff. Uh, and you, um, as a result, they aren't producing very high quality material. Um, the, the workforce tends to be fairly unmotivated and, almost every recycling facility is being run understaffed. They can't fully staff, which in turn means that um, they're not extracting all the value that they can be. Um, and so it helps them sort of deal with the cost of it. You need a lot of manual labor to sort of fully uh, operate one of these facilities, but but surely, let, uh, but, uh, but just letting them fully staff up is a huge part of the, the um, value to the customers. And is the, uh, um, so there's, I guess there's, and there's two elements, right? There's a cost element and then there's an effectiveness element. Um, what is the cost relative to humans? And then what is the effectiveness relative to humans? So it depends on sort of the number of shifts they're operating the material and all of this, but usually the robot is um, 
saving uh, or offsetting two, uh, two uh, manual sorters per mm-hmm. shift. And then we can run, if they run two shifts a day, we'll save them for FTEs. Um, with that, they can be looking at kind of a two to three year payback uh, for these um, systems. Um, in terms of effectiveness, there's a couple different metrics that they rely on. So, or that, that, that they're focused on. So the first is, is the purity of what gets separated out. So our vision system uh, on mo- uh, pretty much all of the categories that they care about um, is, uh, well, there's two figures. There's both precision and recall, but the purity of what we separate out is um, at kind of 99% or better uh, typically, uh, where it's not, it's usually because of some physical issue like the robot, they're getting boxes on the line and the robot's just physically knocking boxes around or something. But anyway, usually 99% purity or better. And, um, and then for our recovery rate of the material, so uh, you know, out of everything that's there, how much are we actually getting? Um, we're usually around something like 90%, um, which is roughly equivalent to a person. So a person can um, basically get everything, but what you find is after an hour of being in this job, uh, you sort of start zoning out and it's hard to stay focused. And so people actually let stuff go by all the time, uh, even though it's sort of, you know, you stop for a moment and whatever you're supposed to pick is perfectly obvious. Uh, it's just hard to keep the focus. The next set of metrics is really about throughput. So a person will average about 40 picks per minute. Uh, They can do more, um, but you'll find that they'll get tired and kind of revert back to about 40. Um, So our robots do 80 picks per minute and we have uh, new versions of the technology that actually push what we can do all the way to 120 or 140 picks per minute that we're working on now. So you're kind of looking at that sort of two FTE, potentially up to three FTE um, replacement with each robot. And, And those are the ways that the facilities primarily look at it is okay, is the robot producing pure enough material? And then how much can it sort? And, um, and, uh, and yeah, and it's, you're sort of looking at kind of two FTEs with better purity. And in, in terms of an expansion roadmap, do you think about it on a materials basis where you start picking this material and that material, which has this value and that value, but over time you're increasing the portfolio um, or do you think about it some other way? No, that, that's exactly right. It's um, so one is, is expansion into different verticals. So we've, most of our work has been in single stream recycling. Um, so, you know, the blue bin you have outside your house, but we've also expanded into construction and demolition material, electronic waste. Um, we're uh, soon deploying our first robot in organic. So a compost facility. Um, and then uh, we've also started experimenting with uh, automotive shred. So basically shredded cars um, but yeah, each of these is sort of a separate material stream, separate customer base that allows us to expand. And then within a recycling facility, we've kind of expanded to the 75% of the stations. That's kind of like um, probably as much as we can do with this type of robot. But within each of those stations, the robots can do something that's very difficult for these facilities now, which is more finely separate out the materials. So rather than just separating out paper, we can separate out office paper and newspaper and magazines uh, rather than number five plastics or something like that. We can separate out specifically yogurt tubs and curry cups and like all of these things. And it ends up in the industry, the more you can provide a consistent chemistry in the commodity, the more value you can extract. Um, And so this $80 a ton of revenue uh, with these capabilities starts to look more like $90 a ton of revenue or $100 a ton of revenue. And that's what we want to do is not only cut their costs, but help ex- expand uh, the revenue that they can extract from these materials. So I don't know if you know this data since it might not be core to your business, but what what percentage of the stuff that's in a landfill uh, didn't go straight to the landfill, like went through, funneled through recycling? And then what percentage of the stuff that funnels through recycling do you think that you can... Uh, um, you know, that, that, that is ending up in the landfill. Do you think you can reduce if you're, uh, you know, if you're wildly successful? 
So, so today, um, roughly a third of the material um, uh, that's produced in the United States is, is recycled or for in municipal solid waste. Um, so, you know, not, not too good of a figure. When you look at what is in the municipal solids waste stream um, for what can be kind of mechanically recycled, you usually look at over 50% that could be recycled. Um, so other bottles and cans that people aren't throwing in the recycling bin or that are being lost by, the, by these facilities there's then a lot more material that can actually be diverted. So, um, so if you look at kind of food waste, um, that can be as much as another 20% of it. Uh, if you start to look at wood, so wooden pallets and things like that, you kind of get another five or 7%. By the time you're done with it, there is a potential to divert roughly 90% of the material from the landfill. And that is what we want to do is make it so that, that our technology can separate it out. But more importantly, we make it so cheap to separate out that there's an economic incentive to do so. And then, um, and then where possible, we sort of create higher value materials by controlling the chemistry or, or creating certain mixtures that are interesting for, uh, for the buyers of those commodities. But, um, but yeah, ultimately we wanna boost that recycling rate to something very high. Um, it'll take a lot of time for things like food waste. Uh, the economics on sorting it out are pretty marginal. So you have to have a very efficient operation, uh, but, uh, but that's where, where we're going. Is it, is it inhibiting your impact if you part if your customers are the recycling companies versus if there was a way to get it kind of at that fork in the road before it goes to you before it chooses between the recycling bin or the garbage can? Um, you'll have to tell me if I don't quite answer it, but so there is a challenge right now, which is that you have sort of two material streams, or in or in, San, in some areas like San Francisco, you have three material streams, right? The organics, single stream, and then you know the rest of the garbage. Um, and this is tough because uh, you know we're Americans. Not everybody sort of spends the time to do this properly. And so, if the wrong material goes in the wrong place, you lose it. And then a lot of people just don't participate. Right? They'll just throw everything in the garbage for convenience. So, ultimately, what what we think is possible is the technology improves enough that you just go through the garbage, um, and that you know is sort of just improves. Um, sort of the amount of material that you can um, consider uh, as part of your programs uh, and, and the amount of material you can divert. It gets complicated because the separation isn't the only problem. A lot of these materials will contaminate each other. So think, you know, you get a lot of food on your paper. Now the paper's not worth nearly as much. Um, but one of the neat things about what we have with our deep learning based vision system is we don't just identify the material, we also identify um, attributes about it. So when we see a bottle, we can say not only is this a bottle, but it is it, is it full? If it's a clear bottle, we can see if it's full. If it's a piece of paper, you have the potential to see, hey, how, is this soiled or not? This is a level of control that existing recycling facilities don't really have. You know, they kind of can coarsely separate out the paper, but you'll get a mixture of sturdy or, or clean paper. And so there's a potential to produce high quality materials, even if it's coming from the mixed garbage stream. Uh, in the industry, it's called municipal solid waste. Um, and that's ultimately what we want, uh, that what we're aiming to do with the technology. Um, but, but we're not there yet. Right now we're focused on single stream recycling and, and creating um, mm -hmm. sort of better incentives for those facilities that, that focus on that. Is there any sorting that happens in landfill waste or is the only sorting in the recycling facilities? So, so you do have what are called uh, dirty recycling facilities. Um, so in, in the industry, they call it recycling facilities, MRFs, so material recovery facilities. Um, and then there's a concept of a dirty MRF. Um, and the dirty MRF go, it just goes through the garbage. Um, 
those already exist. Actually, one of the biggest ones is down in San Jose, um, at a facility called Newbie Island. It's an extremely impressive uh, facility, um, but the um, but there's not very many of them. And the reason is is that um, the technology uh, is sort of limited in the types of materials that can extract from that type of stream. It's also heavily uh, contaminated. As a result, you end up having tougher unit economics, which in turn drive you to build a larger facility. So you sort of have these mega facilities of which there's only a handful. Um, but they've shown that you can do it. Um, now, our task is to then make those operations more efficient so, you, so you, they're more common. Um, but um, you also have seen, there's been occasional examples of people actually mining landfills uh, for value. It's also very rare because the, the economics are pretty tough to make work out. Um, so yeah, primarily, so there are examples and um, proofs of, and uh, proof points that this is possible, but, um, but there's not a whole lot. It's not how the majority of the industry deals with material. And I, I think what I'm poking on, it might be sensitive because the recycling uh, um, facilities are your initial customers, but in your long vision, are you about making the existing system more efficient or are you about changing the system? And if you're about changing the system, what is your vision for how the system should be? Well, so the way we see it, it's all about aligning incentives. Like we want to make it so that like, hey, you can have a great business separating material and extracting this commodity value. And so anything that makes the recycling business better, um, you know, helps bolster the economics and grow the industry. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say it's more about like sort of equipping uh, people in the industry to extract more value. And then we're sort of the, um, you know, we're the, the equipment provider, we're the arms dealer in sort of the war against waste. Um, but, um, but yeah, with good enough technology, all these existing players, whether they're small independent businesses or big public companies can extract, if they can make more money there, they're going to do it. And, uh, and we want to, make it possible for them to do that. And will you always be playing at the industrial level or is there a world where you make miniature versions that could actually play in things like residential waste? De definitely. So there's kind of two, two pieces. It's like, Hey, what are the unit economics for um, processing this? And you make it sort of, you know, a better business to be in. But the other part is, is if you have heavily automated facilities, um, you potentially can build smaller facilities that run 24 seven and you reduce the CapEx necessary. If you reduce the CapEx necessary, what you find is you can build a profitable recycling program in smaller towns. Today, recycling facilities are often 20 or $30 million or even more. The only place you can afford to build these facilities is in large metro areas where you have a huge population that's gonna feed material to it. If you can build something smaller, a couple million dollars, you can be profitable to build this in a smaller town. And that's what an example of how you help grow the market. So, so yes, uh, most of our focus is on developing equipment that can be installed with very little retrofit into the existing base and help their businesses be better. But there are very interesting and exciting things you can do when it comes to building out um, sort of a greenfield facility around the technology and that then enabling smaller communities. Um, and that's just one example of how to um, how you grow the market. Uh huh. And and where is the industry on the adoption curve now? Is it is your biggest competition today? that almost everyone is still DIY with, with humans or, or is this more of an established market that you're entering? I'd say we're sort of, at least for this company, kind of transitioning into a growth phase. Um, so a lot of, we have a lot of customers now um, that'll say nice things about us and say the technology works. And so you're starting to see wider and wider adoption. Um, so um, yeah, we have customers that are kind of getting their third orders of robots. Uh, we have some customers that are the large waste players um, and, um, 
and some of these are placing larger, you know, do, ordering dozens of robots at a time. But the, the rough figures here is that in the United States, there's around 30,000 people doing this manual sorting job. And you've seen kind of, um, you know, a couple hundred robots deployed. So we're just on the front end of it. Um, and right now what we're doing as a company is scaling up to be able to deliver hundreds of robots per year uh, into the industry. Uh-huh. Per year, and yeah. and as far as the eye can see, you your sole customer base is the recycling facilities? Yeah, the existing customer base are those um, existing uh, recycling facilities or people who are building a new facility um, and, and want to have robotics and automation as part of the, uh, the facility. Uh-huh. Nice. Um, and, and just in terms of the c- company, so I mean, I know you've raised a bunch of capital, so it sounds like you're kind of in um, scaling mode. What is what does scale look like with a with a company like this? Is it? I mean, is it just about kind? Con- I mean, is it is it going towards Salesforce or uh, you know, do you need any kind of physical infrastructure in the in the facilities that you work with? Like how how does Amp Robotics scale? Yeah, it's it's in a couple different ways. I'll I'll go ahead and um should I, should I go ahead and turn off the presentation or um only yeah if you're done with it stuff? if you have other slides okay. we can cover them but if you're done with it okay. then just shut it off yeah okay um and we can see each other on the big yeah screen. yeah um the uh let's see um so so yeah so things are going well in the company um you know we're kind of scaling up and selling more into more of these recycling facilities than ever but. Our business is ent- almost entirely based here in the United States. Uh, it ends up the European market is potentially more attractive. Um, so they have a little bit, their landfill fees are higher, uh, which in turn makes recycling a bit of a better business. There's also some regulatory schemes they have there that aren't present here. So um, we're beginning to expand into the European market. We just installed our first robot there. We are active in Japan, but we just have a handful of units there. So international expansion is a huge part of us scaling. The other part of us scaling is um, like I mentioned, we have these non-robotic sorting devices and kind of building out that product lineup. So for each facility, you know, they can kind of look at a dozen or two dozen robots uh, to kind of fully staff their lines. We want to develop, deliver more value and have standalone vision systems and other ro- other systems that are uh, not these robots to just automate more and more of the operation, allow them to extract more and more value. Um, so yeah, so last year, about a year ago, we raised a uh, Series A with um, uh, that was led by uh, Sequoia, um, a great partner there. Uh, Sean McGuire led the round, uh, who uh, I absolutely love uh, working with. Um, and um, you know, the company is doing really well, but you know, likely we'll be raising funds uh, soon. Uh, we're actually kind of starting to ramp up for a, a Series B process um, that um, that would help support um, some of the build out of more of this technology and also the expansion into international markets. Uh-huh. And that would be that would be an equity round of financing. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Got it. And then I guess my last question is just um, I don't know if there is a a competitive landscape, but um, if there is, what does that look like and uh, and where are you positioned <clears throat> in the market relative to your peers? Yeah. Um Try, I'll try to stay mostly positive, but uh, we're very proud of what we built uh, and it's been pretty hard. So uh, it, uh, the, so there are a couple other groups that have tried to do this and have started to do this. Um, what you tend to find is that to make a deep learning based vision system that really works well in this industry, you have to build kind of world-class infrastructure. So we built up our own annotation toolkit. We built up our own sort of set of neural networks that are kind of we found work well on this application. Um, and we've seen that others who have kind of entered the market um, 
just haven't built that level of infrastructure. And the result is, is that it's quite hard without doing this to get 99% purities on these different material streams. It is also quite hard to take these off-the-shelf robots designed for manufacturing and get them to be reliable in this industry. Um, so even though I kind of minimize the robot, um, you have all sorts of wacky stuff, huge cardboard boxes, bowling balls, all sorts of things that robots aren't meant to smash. Uh, and you're, the robots are gonna hit this stuff all day, every day. Um, so we've also seen getting, making our systems reliable and coming up with the right combination of hardware and software to do that is difficult. Uh, the results is that I think, um, uh, different groups who've deployed robots have had a real struggle delivering high purity and delivering high reliability. Uh, we've managed to do both um, and have a great reputation. So to our knowledge, we're the only ones actually with repeat customers uh, doing robots for recycling. Uh, and that's been really big. Um, some of these groups got started before us and some a bit later, but, um, but yeah, I'd say kind of this high level of performance has been pretty difficult to achieve. And we're pretty proud that, that we've been able to do that. So, so hopefully I'm not throwing too much shade there, but um but yeah, it's just, uh, we constantly come back to our references on these robots and how they're meaningfully helping these businesses and, and how we have repeat customers and having that kind of be the main, the main message about us versus the, uh, the competition. And my last question is just for anyone from the MCJ community who's listening and is inspired by what you're doing, how can we help you? Where do you need help? Yeah, um, well, I think, uh, you know, anybody who's sort of involved in... Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of different ways. So the way we look at the industry, anything that really helps the recycling industry is good. So whether there's different things people are involved with in policy or, or other things like that, uh, if there's opportunities to kind of boost the industry, increase the transparency in the industry, um, uh, you know, um, things like that. Um, and yeah, anybody who's kind of in, in journalism as well, um, th these are all very interesting opportunities for us. Um, we're also growing quickly. Uh, and need uh, team members across the spectrum, everything from sort of operations and sort of uh, the building and, and maintenance of these systems to um, to engineering resources, to project management resources. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different things we're hiring for. Um, and uh, if anybody's interested in, you know, potentially being part of the future of recycling and robotics uh, and, and getting to play with robots in the process, um, you know, they should definitely feel free to reach out. Um, but, um, but yeah, I'd say some of the, those are some of the two main ones. And is there anything that I didn't ask that you wish I did or, or any parting words for listeners beyond what we just discussed? No, I think, I think these are great questions. Hopefully people got a good perspective on what we're doing. Um, I think the thing I'd, I'd throw on there is, is uh, just kind of coming back to the original point of, you know, I think, I think recycling is very interesting. Um, I think if people are skeptical that recycling has value, it, there's a great book, it's called The Takedown, and it's about, it's out of print, but you can find plenty of copies. And it's about um, sort of the mafia's uh, sort of relationship with the recycling industry. And so you actually had in the Northeast, uh, this stuff was so valuable, like the mafia was fighting and breaking kneecaps to hold on to it. Uh, and so I just, I kind of love the contrast to that of like, you know, these hardcore people who are, you know, they cared a lot about material value and paper quality and all of these things. Um, so, so great book, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to get it back out of, or back in print, uh, but, um, but yeah, but just this general impression that, you know, recycling as an industry is subject to a commodity market. And so it has all the challenges that you'd associate with commodity markets. I mean, oil and gas fields have problems when commodity part market swings. So does, so does metal extraction. And so when it goes bad, I think people are too, are quick to give up on recycling, um, when really it's, uh, it does an important thing. It's actually a lot healthier than people think. 
and with our technology and other tech and uh, other technology in the industry, it's it's only going to become a more major part of the waste stream going forward. And so, um, so uh, you know, I'm just hoping to paint a very optimistic uh, picture for everybody, and it's a, it's an industry worth um, putting time into. Yeah, and, and I mean, this was a really amazing discussion. It it is a topic. You know, you see the big bold headlines and stuff, but uh, I learned so much from digging in here, and I I can't wait. I'm going to seek out that book and read that that book as well. I, it so- sounds like a really good one. Yeah, it's surprisingly surprisingly well written. Um, absolutely fascinating. But no, uh, so so grateful for the conversation, and and thank you so much for for having us on this uh, program. Okay, thanks, Matanya. Best yeah. of luck to you. Yeah, thank you. You too. Hey everyone, Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.